Our scripture today is from Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 26 to 28. Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 and 26 to 28. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kabar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. I saw what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. I should have practiced this. <laughs> and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is the word of the Lord. It's my pleasure this morning to welcome our guest speaker, Brian Marcioni. Brian's preached here once before. It was a terrific blessing. We're so uh, glad to have Brian back. For those who don't remember Brian, he serves as one of the lay preachers at the Antioch Church in Waltham. He's also an electrical engineer in his, uh, like, bat is that like the Bruce Wayne uh, <laughs> vocational life? Brian has a master's from Gordon-Conwell. Um, I've known Brian and his wife, Catherine, who's right here for Gosh, over 10 years. I don't know how long it's been. You guys even may know Catherine. Catherine was the administrator over at PCNS across the street in the nursery school. She's over this. And uh, her, his son, uh, Henry, you've probably seen walking our halls of here earlier. He's one of the awesome setup and breakdown crew. Henry, thank you for helping enable us to worship here. So Henry was kind enough to bring his drag his dad along for worship services. So we appreciate that, Henry. And also Joseph and Mary are here as well as other kids. I've so appreciated his family's commitment, dedication to the Lord and to their church and the strong biblical preaching you so often bring there and the support that is to the pastors there. And I'm so glad you can join us today. Let's pray for Brian. Oh, Lord, we uh, just want to praise you and thank you for your word. I thank you for Brian and his willing to serve in this way in our church this morning. And I pray that your blessing would rest upon him, that you give us all open hearts to hear, that your spirit might take what is in his heart and in his mind, Lord, and move it to what you want to do in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. Good morning. I'm blessed and honored to be here uh, to share the word of the Lord with you. And I want to start off by doing a little bit of an experiment. And I sent some pictures out to the team here. I was wondering if we could put up that first picture that I have there. Now imagine that you're on the phone with a friend and they ask you, what do you see? What would you say? And this is not a trick question. What would you say? I see a strawberry. It's a ripe strawberry, it's red, I see the seeds around it, it's got the green leaves on the top. It's a strawberry, right? So let's put up the next picture. Now imagine you're asked the same question. Somebody says to you, hey, what do you see? What are you gonna say? I don't know, but you'll describe it, and how will you describe it? You say, well, 
it's, it's metal, it's like, it looks like stainless steel, it's kind of a donut thing and it has a cable. You'll compare it to things that you already know because you're describing something that you've never seen before. I, I would guess, I, I looked hard to think of a picture like this, probably most of you have never seen this before. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, you'll have to catch me after the service <laughs> to find out. But You'd use, you know, it's like this, it's like that, it's kind of a donut with a hole in it, but it has this thing sticking up, it's like this, it's like that. And in our text today, as Garrett read, you saw, Ezekiel uses those words like a couple times. It was like lapis lazuli, it was like fire, it was, there was like a rainbow, right? And so he's describing something that he's never seen before. It's a vision of God himself. And if you read through all of chapter one of Ezekiel, which we didn't have time for, but I, I you know, encourage you to do that when you get home, you're gonna see that language all over the chapter. It was like this, it was like that. It had the appearance of this. And this is really common when we read this type of biblical literature. And so I wanna make a suggestion. When we do encounter literature like this, that's frankly, confusing and hard to understand because it's, it's describing something that's really hard to picture. If you're very thinky like me, you can try to figure it out. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What, how do I draw this out? Or are there any pictures of this? That sort of thing. It's really important when we read this kind of literature to, to use your imagination and let the imagery hit you emotionally as well. You know, there's this, this old adage if you're into writing or, or if you're a writer, writers always say, if you want to write well, show, don't tell, okay? So in other words, don't just say, he walked out and he saw the beauty of nature. Say, he had seen sunlight flashing on icy thin waterfalls as they plunged over the lips of sheer stone cliffs and a mountain meadow full of autumn wildflowers, blue cold snaps and bright scarlet frost fires and strands of piper's grass and russet and gold, right? I'm showing a beautiful scene. It's actually not me, it's George R.R. R. Martin. That's from uh, the Game of Thrones book, which I never read, but it was a beautiful description. And so the Bible is doing just that. It's evoking, it's showing us something that's meant to evoke emotion and response from us. And these passages are meant to inspire wonder and awe. So when you read them, let it hit you emotionally. It's part of the reason that it was written. I mean, it sure hits Ezekiel emotionally as he sees it. So put yourself in that scene. You're down by a river, you're in exile from your own land, and you see this glorious vision of God. One commentator I read said, we're dealing with visions that are meant to stir the imagination, not yield to the drawing board. And it can work the same way if you read something gross or gruesome or gory, like pools of blood rising up to horses' bridles in the book of Revelation or beasts with horns in Daniel. Let it wash over you emotionally. So as you read that text when you go home, because I know all of you are going to do that the first thing when you get home today, as you read Ezekiel chapter 1, let that, let that happen. And as you read it, you'll be confused, and you'll wonder, what in the world is this saying? What is going on here? And I want to suggest to you today that this text is showing us 
that there is no one like our God. There is no one like our God. That's what this vision showed Ezekiel, the original readers, and what it continues to show us today. So let me make a couple of observations about it and some of the parts we didn't read. Because Ezekiel sees basically these four creatures with four faces, all facing a different direction. And they have wings, and they're holding up this chariot. And there's wheels underneath them that go both ways. And it goes wherever they want to go, and the wheels have eyes on them. It's, it's this wild, wild image. And so what do we do about these creatures? There are four animal types that we see. There's a lion, an eagle, an ox, and a human. And very similar to John's vision in Revelation when he sees the throne room of God in Revelation 4. And so one thing to note is that creatures have four faces, right? One on each side, so they never need to turn. They're always looking forward, always advancing, never retreating. A lion has strength, ferocity, and courage. It's a symbol of royalty. Think about the lion in Judah in Revelation 5. God referring to himself as a lion in Hosea 5. There's an eagle, the fastest and most dignified of all the birds. An ox, which was the most valuable domestic animal, a symbol of fertility and divinity. And then a human, created in the image of God, most dignified and noble of all the strength of a lion, the swiftness of an eagle, the value of service of an ox, the intelligence of a human. These beings are bearing God's throne. They're his servants. They're carrying him around. How much greater then is the God that they serve? How powerful and awesome is he if these amazing creatures are serving him? And there's this sea of glass in Revelation 4 that's very similar to this vault of crystal that we see in Ezekiel. And it emphasizes the otherness of God, that he's separated from us by this vault. A tricky word in English, but just think of a big sphere like the sky, an expanse like a vaulted ceiling. And there's eyes on these wheels. Nothing escapes God's notice. He sees everything. So what do we have? We have God on his mobile throne, carried by these amazing creatures that embody the best characteristics of the animal kingdom. It's dazzling, it's glorious, it's terrifying, and there's nothing at all like it that Ezekiel's ever seen or conceived. So it's hard to describe, it's hard to envision. Why is it hard to describe? Because there's no one like our God. And if you zoom out a little bit, see this again, because there's two very unexpected aspects of this vision when we consider the culture of Ezekiel's time. First, God is on this mobile chariot. One commentator said, God doesn't have a mobile phone. He has a mobile throne, okay? God is in Babylon. He's not in the temple in Jerusalem. This is very countercultural. He's not a local deity, which is how most cultures at the time thought of gods. It'd be normal for a, a traveler to think as he wandered through the land, hey, who are the gods in this land as they pass through a foreign nation? Who are the gods? Oh, you're in this land, so Baal's the god. Oh, Marduk rules here. Oh, here it's Dagon. Not our god. 
He's on his throne everywhere. The wheels, the wings, the chariots flashing back and forth that indicate he's unconstrained by location. He's not like other gods. There is no one like our God. And second, God is on his throne. The text we read, God is seated on his throne. And remember, at this point in time, the Israelites, they're conquered by the Babylonians. Ezekiel's in exile. They're taken off to a, a foreign land. If your nation is conquered and oppressed, your kingdom is overthrown by another, would you expect your king to still be sitting on the throne? If there were a war in which America was invaded and overthrown, we wouldn't expect President Biden to be giving a State of the Union address, right? And in the cultural context of the day, if you are overthrown, that means your God is overthrown, but not here. God is enthroned, still glorious, still unspeakably powerful, far from conquered, and in many ways, he's about to give a State of the Union address. Just because the Israelites are conquered doesn't mean that God is conquered. His rule and reign aren't dependent on his people, where they are or what they've done. There's no one like our God. Zoom out a little further. What's our reaction when we read this for the first time? How many of you read this for the first time and just kind of blew your mind and you moved on? Right? If you've read Ezekiel 1. It's a really confusing text. And all the commentators I've read about this, they note that like the Hebrew is a nightmare. There's all these really weird words and hard to translate phrases and structure and grammar. And so a bunch of really, really sharp people who live and breathe Hebrew all their life struggled with this text. It's puzzling. It's clear that Ezekiel doesn't even really understand what's going on either. He's befuddled. Why? Well, at some level, God is indescribable and incomprehensible. These texts are so hard to understand because the author is describing indescribable things. This necessarily defies a full understanding because it's describing a vision of God. And there is no one and nothing like our God. That's why there's mystery in God when we read the Bible. There's no real good illustration for the Trinity on earth. It's not like an egg, a shell, a yolk, and the white. It's not like water, steam, ice, and liquid. It's not like a clover like St. Patrick did with the three leaves. It's not a person with three different roles like a mother, a daughter, wife. All of these are some form of heresy, and they fall short. None of them is really like the triune God. One God, three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons. And it has to be this way. It has to not make sense because God is other. He's above and beyond our full comprehension. Karl Barth said that God cannot be compared to anyone or anything. He's only like himself. There is no one and nothing like our God. It's why sometimes it's not going to make sense to us. 
that the Trinity doesn't really make sense in our minds. You can't illustrate it. The fact that Jesus is fully human and fully divine doesn't make sense. That God is sovereign and rules over all, yet we're still responsible for our actions, it doesn't make sense. And to some extent, every theological error, every big controversy about the nature of God brushes up against these mysteries and apparent paradoxes because we're reaching the edge of what we can understand. Let me give you a really, really silly illustration to, to try and drive this home. How many, raise your hand, how many of you have a dog or have lived with a dog, dog lovers, right? So think of a dog and its master. So a dog can know you, can live with you, love you, obey you, learn to depend on you, understand you in a very basic way. But the dog would never fully understand you or your ways. It's just incapable. It doesn't even have the categories for the things we do, the things we think about or understand. Just go home to your dog, if you, if you have a dog, or cat, or, or your rabbit, or whatever, and and sit it down and imagine, just try to explain one of the simplest human concepts to your pet. Try to get the dog, try to get your dog to understand this, like, addition. Something a four-year-old could, could understand. Addition. So, you know, you see, you got, you got one bone over here and two, another bone over here, and you put them together, and that's two bones. We call that Addition. And what, what's your dog going to do? Bone? Did you, did you say bone? Right? It, it, it can't even think about it. Now, imagine trying to explain some concept to the dog like honor or integrity. You, you can't even get close. How much greater is the separation between us finite human beings and, and God? like us and, and, and dogs. It's infinitely greater. Why would we expect that we could understand everything about him? But before we get carried away in that, I want to be sure to note something. God may be indescribable and at times incomprehensible, incomprehensible but he is knowable. He's knowable. A dog can still know us and relate to us, right? Right after this text, God speaks to Ezekiel in an intelligible way that he understands. So we can't confuse knowing somebody with exhaustively knowing somebody. We wouldn't even do this on a human level in our relationships. I mean, do you know anybody exhaustively to the very bottom? My wife and I have been married for 19 years, and there's probably nobody on this earth uh, who I know better or knows me better. But we'd never say that we know everything about each other. We're still learning things about him. Wow, you did that when you were in sixth grade? I never knew, right? We're still discovering things about each other. It's not exhaustive. How much more then would this apply to knowing the person, to knowing God? Of course, I can know him, but not exhaustively. There's no one like our God. So maybe you can see how failing to recognize this can create so many problems in our lives. If we forget the otherness of God, we tend to pull God down to our level. 
And there's a quote that, that summarizes this, and I couldn't find out who, who said it for real, if it was Pascal or this playwright or Voltaire, but the quote is, God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. <laughs> right? We made God in our image. We pulled him down. So let me give you some examples of that. How about in our attitudes? I mean, are we ever nonchalant about sin in our lives? I mean, is the God pictured here that we see in Ezekiel somebody to be trifled with? Is it just a casual thing to offend, to mock, to insult, to disobey this God that we see? And what about self-condemnation? Well, if I were God, I'd reject me. I'd be angry with me. I would never forgive me. Vengeance and unforgiveness. If I were God, I'd make that person pay. We often make God in our own image, and he winds up to be as fussy, rude, narrow-minded, legalistic, judgmental, unforgiving, and unloving as we are. Brendan Manning said that. And do you see the error in that? There's no one like our God. The Bible is serious when it says that his ways are above our ways. His love is greater than ours. His justice greater than ours. His wisdom is greater than ours. His power is greater than ours. His goodness is greater than ours. His glory is greater than ours. Ezekiel, a prophet who has a vision of him, can barely describe his glory in an intelligible way. He's flawless, good, holy, other, mighty, wise, loving, just, beautiful, glorious, and perfect, far beyond any ability of ours to describe him. We can't even approach it. There's no one like our God. Our own virtues, the very best of humanity, is just a dim shadow of his. Our own beauty, the most beautiful, gobsmacking, amazing thing you've ever seen, doesn't even come close. One cannot speak of God by simply speaking of man in a loud voice, said a theologian. And this is really what the Roman and Greek gods were, if you think about mythology. They're just human beings writ large, right? They had every different manner of virtues and vices, but just on a bigger scale with more power. Take humans, give them immortality, supernatural powers, and you wind up with these ancient mythologies. But not our God. There is no God like our God. And when this starts to sink in, you can see how deeply shocking and astonishing it is for God to become man in Jesus Christ. It's one of the things that is so perplexing for people of other faiths to grasp that God would get his hands dirty like that. But there is no one like our God. That God, this God we see in chapter 1 of Ezekiel, the one who is like no other, became one of us. Jesus left all of that glory for our sakes. He traded all that power for powerlessness and weakness. Is there anything more helpless or powerless than a human baby? 
I mean, even in the animal kingdom, most animal babies can walk pretty soon or swim or whatever, right? Is there anything more powerless than a baby born of a blue-collar family in a land that's occupied by a hostile government or a child born to a family that has to flee for its life as King Herod tries to kill that child? God traded all that for that. He traded all that glory for ugliness. The best biblical evidence we have indicates there's nothing special about Jesus' appearance. Now, even if he was the most attractive person who ever lived, pick your favorite celebrity, it's still a huge downgrade from what we see in Ezekiel 1. He traded entitlement, all his rights, all his due as God, all that power, all that privilege for restriction and disadvantage. I mean, if anybody in the universe is actually entitled to anything, if anybody has the right to anything, surely it's the author of the universe and life itself. But Jesus gave all that up, all his rights, every privilege, every power, every honor that is rightly due to him. He traded security for insecurity, the perfect loving union he has with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It's traded for an environment where people hate persecute, betray, and kill him. He traded comfort for discomfort. He was one of us. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He bled. He traded life for death, a humiliating, torturous, unjust death at the hands of the ones he came to save. The ones he loved were the ones who killed him. And now, through Christ, through this God, the God Ezekiel sees here, we call him Abba, Father, Dad. You see how radical this is? Why, it, it absolutely flummoxed Jesus' contemporaries when he called God his Father. And when we read in Hebrews that we approach the throne of grace with confidence, like that's the throne we're approaching, the, the one we see here. Who is like that? Who does that? Who loves like that? I mean, you only sacrifice in proportion to your love, right? And God gives everything. And if we see who God is, we get a better sense of what that sacrifice was, how great his love is for us. It changes us because there's no one like our God. So how do we respond to this? Now, Ezekiel responds in obedience. He gives his life for God, and he, he gives a lot. Now, on this side of the cross, we have a, a clearer picture of who God is than even Ezekiel. How do we respond? How do we respond to who God is? What could we possibly say or do or think how can we even hope to come close to giving him what he's due? All we can do, the very best, is to give him ourselves. All our life, all our heart, all our talent, all our treasure, all our time, all our thought, all our worship, our adoration, everything we ever had or will have, Every inch 
of who we are, our whole lives, give to him. Everything, all the time, all for him. We can't give any more. Do you see that? It, I mean, anything less, it's an affront to him. It's a slight, it's an insult, it's a dishonor. And if somebody rescues you from drowning and you don't even acknowledge it or say thank you, if you make some bad financial choices, you wind up you know, without a home and somebody takes you in and gives you food and shelter at great personal cost and inconvenience to themselves and you're just sort of casual about it, they ask for a ride to the airport and you're like, well, you know, Shark Tank is on, so I kind of, I don't really feel like it. No, I, thanks to their help and resources, you're on your feet again. You know, maybe you win some award or whatever, you don't, you don't even thank them. How patient and merciful and forgiving is our God that he puts up with that. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me. Change our hearts. There is no one like you. There is no one like you. The hymnist Isaac Watts um, has, a, has a stanza in, in the wondrous cross that I think sums this up. He says, were the whole realm of nature mine, it were an offering far too small. Love so amazing so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Everything we have, there is no one like our God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the revelation of who you are, and thank you, God, that despite the fact that you are exalted and other and to some extent beyond our comprehension, you've made yourself known to us, that we can know you, we can relate to you, we call you Father, that you became one of us, you walked among us and gave your life for us so we could know you and be with you forever. Help us, Lord, to respond to that in our hearts as we meditate on your word, as we worship you, as we think of you, uh, to give our very lives to you, God. You are good, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.